grab a Bible and open it to the book of Hebrews chapter 1. My friend, Mike Self, is convinced that Batman is by far the most incredible superhero that has ever existed. Mike would contend for you that he is the best. Got to tell you, don't have a dog in the hunt. I don't really care. Mike cares. Mike cares a lot. In fact, on several occasions, Mike gave me long lists of reasons why Batman is by far the greatest superhero. I mean, he has lots of reasons. To Mike, this isn't a conversation. It's not a question. As if there are other valid answers, there's no conversation, there's no dispute. Mike would assert to you that all knowing and intelligent people just know that Batman is superior. Now for the sake of Mike's reputation, I should add that he's married, has wonderful kids. Just just let you know that he's a normal guy, lest you think Batman is the only thing about him that's significant. But it's funny to me that Mike cares so much that he's made lists. This morning, we're starting the book of Hebrews. And as I read through this chapter over and over and over again, preparing for this moment, I was reminded of my friend Mike. Because we open the book of Hebrews, the author starts by giving you a list. Seven statements. Seven accomplishments, seven attributes of Jesus that it would be so unavoidable to miss the fact that his principal argument is going to become Jesus is better. So as we turn to Hebrews chapter 1 this morning, as we open up God's word, let's pray about our time in his word. Pray with me. Gracious Father, We give thanks for your word. What we have here in the Bible came from your mouth. You breathed it out. You carried along the authors as they wrote. So, Father, what we have is precious and authoritative and true. So this morning, Father, as we open your word... And we consider the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Would you open our eyes? And would you attune our hearts? And would you blow our minds with who Jesus is? Father, for as we walk in the days we walk, we can be convinced so easily that different aspects of this world are better. And we need to be reminded that Jesus is far more superior than anything else we could taste or touch or fathom or imagine. Jesus is better than any dream we could conceive He's more powerful than any superhero we could make up. 
Father, would you be at work in us this morning, building in our minds a better theology of Jesus? He's bigger. So we ask this morning, Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen. Last week, we introduced the book of Hebrews. I gave you the big picture. So this morning, we're jumping right in. Hebrews 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Friends, I would remind you what I said last week, that the book of Hebrews is more a sermon than it is a letter. So the author jumps right in. Long ago, God spoke. He's pointing back to the Old Testament. We shouldn't miss that this book is called Hebrews because it's written to an audience that was Jewish and had come to faith in Christ. So if you're going to make an appeal to that group of people, to the Hebrews, pointing to the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament as we call it, would be the way to make an argument. God spoke to the prophets. And then the prophets would speak to the people. If you want to think about it this way, think of Moses. We just came out of Exodus. Moses, who led the Israelites out of Egypt and wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Remind you that that God met with Moses, spoke to Moses, and then Moses would go tell the people. God spoke to the fathers by the prophets. That's the example you see in the Old Testament. We could talk about Jeremiah writing Jeremiah and Lamentations. We could talk about the whole Old Testament. That's what he's talking about. That's what he's pointing to. But, verse 2, in these last days, recently, says the author, he has spoken to us through his Son, subtly or not so subtly at all, the author here is equating the work of the Father in the Old Testament to the person and the work and the words and the authority of Jesus Christ. He's making an an equivocation that what God did to the Father, He's now doing through the Son. He's trying to help them to see God is changing his program from talking through people to sending his son. And his son being his spokesman. God used to speak this way, now he speaks that way. To deal with his people directly. In these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. So if he's going to draw this equivocation between the ministry of the prophets and the ministry of Jesus, he's now going to fortify their understanding of the Son. If he's going to say this and this are equal, he wants you to see who the Son is. So he's going to give you seven things about the Son. 
I want to remind you, and I want to be careful in my reminder, but I'm telling you anyway. We don't play a lot in numerology that numbers mean stuff. you got to be careful when you want to delve into numerology. And yet we should pick up the fact that the number seven is significant in Scripture. Because it tells you seven is a number of completion. It's a perfect number. It tells you that it's done. There's a reason why six is an incomplete number. Why 666 is a testimony of incompleteness and imperfection. So he tells you seven things about the Son. He's giving you testimony of the completeness, the wholeness, the perfection of Jesus. He's going to give seven things that lay a foundation of the supremacy of Jesus. Seven things that are going to tell for us, that define for us that Jesus is better. So I'm going to read them to you, and then we're going to look at them. And we're going to look at them because I think if I just read them to you and we consider the list, you'll say in your mind, yep, yeah, that's Jesus, yep, yeah, he's that too, yep, without actually leaning into the incredible nature of everything that it's professing about Jesus. So let me read, starting in the end of verse 2. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Tells you seven things. We'll start with the first. Whom he appointed the heir of all things. God the Father, this is what it's testifying to, God the Father has appointed God the Son, the heir of all things. It tells us something of the unity of the Father and the Son, not merely in likeness, we'll get to that, but in purpose. God the Father says, I'm giving everything to God the Son. It's a statement that gets to the sovereignty and the dominion of Jesus. That if everything belongs to him, it's all his. I remember as a child, I liked to play with G.I. Joe. That was my area. My sister liked to play with Barbies. That was her area. And from time to time, my G.I. Joes would invade the Barbie house. It needed to happen. They needed some discipline over there in Barbie world. So I would bring my toys over. And I would try to claim dominion over her area, which I did not have. It caused issues, correct? Yes. What I'm trying to submit to you is that 
Jesus, who's been appointed the heir of all things, has dominion in all areas. Which would submit, I would submit to you means he lacks dominion in no area. So unlike my sister who could say to me, this is mine, you can't say that to Jesus. Listen to me. Jesus has total dominion over you. You can't say, God, you don't rule this area of my life. Because he does. He has complete sovereignty and dominion because the Father has appointed him heir of all things. Which brings us to the second point. Through whom also he created the world. So the first picture gives you this perspective of of God the Son related to God the Father. You might be tempted to think that God the Son is somehow subordinated to the Father. He's somehow less than the Father. Through whom he created the world. The author of Hebrews wants to now blow your mind on the person of Christ. For the Father not only gives everything to His Son, but far more He wants to testify that the Son, Jesus, was the agent of creation. That is, if you have agency, when God spoke and light happened, whose voice do you think it was? Think agency. The Gospel of John affirms this. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. Colossians attests to the same thing. Colossians 1.16 For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So not only does he rule and have dominion, he's the agent of creation for literally everything you can fathom. Everything on earth, everything on heaven. Whether you could see it, Or you can't see it. He created it. Jesus created the stars and the sun and the moon. Jesus created the flamingo, the polar bear, the narwhal, the bald eagle. He created the beaver, the platypus, the oak tree. It really doesn't matter how far you want to push into creation. Jesus created it. And all things were created through him and for him. 
He didn't just create them, he created it for himself. So that he doesn't just have dominion over everything, he's actually the creator of everything. And has dominion over everything. And for this is where I want to pause. Because this connection is going to happen naturally for us in a couple minutes. But I want you to hold to it now. Because here we are, two things into a list of seven. We're not very far in. And we're seeing Jesus as the ruler and creator of everything. We're seeing Jesus in power and dominion and authority. We're seeing this enormous picture of Jesus. And we need to be reminded. We need to hold to while we're holding this epic view of Jesus. We need to be reminded that it's also Jesus who empties himself. It's Jesus who takes on human flesh and becomes obedient to death, even death on the cross. That this Jesus, and we're only barely into describing him, this Jesus, this creator ruler, was willing to take on your sin. This Jesus, who is holding high and above everything in the universe, was willing to take your place. You'd be hard-pressed to conceive of anything more valuable than Christ. And when Christ willingly places himself and takes on your debt, the significance there should not be missed. That Christ would stand in our place and take on our sin that we might receive his righteousness. Friends, it is my aim this morning to give you the biggest possible picture of Jesus. In fact, the image that the author of Hebrews is trying to conjure up for you but at the same time to remind you that it is this very Jesus who gives himself up for you so that you would see that in his coming and his living and in his dying, that there's nothing about this man that isn't absolutely incredible. There's nothing about Jesus that isn't astounding if we lean in. So let's lean in. Let's look at his third point. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. Think about radiance. It's what shines out. It's what you could see, what you could perceive. If you had a a light bulb, it's so bright, the radiance would be the light. Years ago, I worked at a camp. One of my jobs at night was to make sure all the campers stayed in their dorms. 
One of the very effective tools we had was a 3 million candle power spotlight. One of the fun things you could do with a 3 million candle power spotlight in the dark is knock a kid over with light. So kid would come sneaking around his cabin thinking he's going to go off into the woods to do something ridiculous. And I'm standing there and bam, he's on his back. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. The power is the light thing, right? It's the spotlight. The light is the radiance. Jesus is the radiant brilliance of God. What he's trying to help you see is that God is glorious beyond all comprehension, beyond all measure, and Jesus is the radiance of that glory. He's all you can take in. You couldn't take in anymore without being flattened. Jesus is as much as you could take. Consider for a moment, Psalm 104 tells us God wraps himself in light. He wraps himself in light. Like you actually couldn't take the actual glory, so he wraps himself in light so as to somehow protect you. That the light is going to make it easier. These metaphors of radiance and light... They just, they give us these images. They describe for us glory. And then we need to be reminded. I heard this recently, wanted to pass it along. We need to be reminded that the sun is 91 million miles away. And you can't look at it for more than a second or two without going blind. 91 million miles? Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. God's glory is beyond measure. And Jesus is the radiance of that glory. Let's take on the fourth one. And the exact imprint of his nature. God the Father is God the Father. You walk through your Old Testament, you're going to have an incredible view of God, of who He is, of His person. Jesus is the exact imprint of the nature of the Father. Jesus is exactly like that guy. The word here for imprint is not used anywhere else in the New Testament. However, it's commonly used in Greek writing to describe Roman coins. And in particular, the Roman emperor's picture on the coins, as well as the impressions left by a seal of the emperor. What's noteworthy in both of those instances is that it's not thought to be an impression. As in, it looks like the emperor. It's thought to be an exact duplication of the original. It's thought to look exactly like the emperor looked. As a kid in the 80s, we had an Atari. 
We played video games on it. I remember at one point with my 8-bit color TV, my mom walking through the room and asking if we were watching a football game. I looked at the TV with these block boxed images and thought, that doesn't even look like people. Like, how would you think that's a game? You, you see the new stuff? I don't even know, Xbox 7 or 6 or CJ can tell these things. Like the new stuff, like it's real, right? Like it's it's dead on. It is an exact imprint. That That's what it's going for here. It's identical in nature. That every part of the godness of the Father is part of the godness of the Son. He's exactly like him in nature. That brings us to the fifth. I don't think there's one here that messes with me as much as the fifth. And he upholds the universe by the power, by the word of his power. Jesus holds dominion over things created all things, and holds them together by his word. There's two ways to understand this, you should know. One way being that God the Father has a providential will, and the way that God's providential will is held together because of the power of the word of the Son. And what God has declared will happen will happen because Jesus holds it together. You want to lean into that? How are the prophecies of the Old Testament held together? How are they fulfilled with exact precision that they're held together with? Because Jesus held it all together by the power of his word. Jesus spoke it all. It's going to happen because I'm saying it's going to happen. That Jesus has such power over history, quite literally, that what he declares in Isaiah, he makes sure happens 700 years later in his own birth. I mean, that's mind-bending. It's one way to see it. The other way, and by the way, you should know, most people hold that both ways are true, is to see it from a for lack of better terms, physics or science perspective. As in, do you know why the earth holds its orbit? I kid you not. Because Jesus holds it together with his words. Do you know why protons and neutrons stay together while being orbited by electrons? Jesus! I was a pre-med student in college. I did really well until I saw blood that I passed out and they told me I couldn't be a doctor. (laughs) Go figure. We took on this one study. We were reading through, and if I had it, I'd look it up. I could find it for you. It's the New New England Journal of Medicine where they started to look at human movement and started to walk through 
How do you move your hand? When your mind says finger move, and it does, how do you do that? And it starts walking through the basic steps. Well, you have a a nerve in your brain that fires and it sends a, a synapse that goes into your nervous system that fires and fires and fires and fires. It gets to your finger and your finger moves, hits the muscle. It's really fast. It's pretty impressive. What's mind-bending about that is when they break that down. Well, why does your brain fire a synapse? Because it releases a chemical. Oh, that makes sense. Why is the chemical released? Because your brain produces an enzyme. Oh, why is the enzyme released? We don't know. It appears that there's something about the human being that there's some instrumentation before all of that. You know why your hand holds together? Jesus. I kid you not. I mean, quite literally, there's a reason why we're not exploding in the room. Jesus holds the universe by the word of his power. You go home, you pull up Google, and you look at the newest telescope. We look into space, and you can see a star that exploded like a week ago. And you're like, that's awesome. It's because Jesus said, by his word, I'm going to do something awesome. I'm going to explode that. And they're going to look at it, and they're going to see who I am. So if you ever stop and think, it's amazing that my life has held together. It's Jesus. Not metaphorically. Not symbolically. Not merely scientifically. But literally. Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. Let there be light. And there was. Brings us to number six. These first five are attributes. They tell us about the nature and the character of God. Jesus is enormous. He's huge. He's unfathomably powerful. So what does that have to do with you and me? Number six. After making purification for sins. I referenced this after the second one because I wanted it on your mind. That Jesus isn't just a grand idea or a thought. But that Jesus is a literal person found in history, locatable in human history, after making purification for sins. Jesus did something, and after that happens, we're going to continue on in the clause. But we can't skip over what it says. This Jesus, who has dominion, who created all things, who holds all things together, who is the very nature of God, the radiance 
of his glory. The most powerful entity you could fathom. Let go of his power and his authority and became man and served as the great high priest and took your sin on himself so that he could be the better sacrifice so that your sin and your rebellion against him might not just be removed and cleansed, but made righteous. That you who were once far off have been made near. That you who were once dirty have been declared pure and righteous and holy not because of your work not because you could clean yourself up not because you could do the right things or you could change your mind or you could perform the right duties no you're purified because of his work on the cross for your behalf after making purifications for sins, after he steps in and takes your and my punishment, brings us to number seven. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having accomplished the work he'd been given on earth, Jesus returned to the choice seat, to the seat of honor, to the seat of authority, next to his Father. But he didn't sit down after he created the world. He didn't sit down after he made you. He sat down after he made a purification for your sins. He's, his work was done after he made a pathway of salvation for you and for me. Friends, it is good and it is right and it is necessary that we know, and I mean really know, that Jesus Christ literally and bodily is ruling and reigning at the right hand of God at this very moment. After he died for your sins, he sat down next to the Father and he's ruling and reigning so that you would know all authority is his authority. So you'd know nothing happens under his nose without his awareness. A bird doesn't fall from the sky without him knowing.
the author of the book of Hebrews gives us these seven majestic and magnificent pictures and attributes of Jesus so that we not only know who he is, but we know what he's done. So we know who he is, and we know what he's done. So that as he continues, he's going to argue that Jesus is better than the angels. Thirteen times the author is going to use this term, better. All to proclaim that Jesus is far more superior than anything that came before him. He's far more superior than anything in Judaism that they're leaving behind. He wants them to have such a thorough Christology study of the Christ. To understand who Jesus is and what he did. So when it comes to his superiority, the supremacy of Christ, you would know it's absolutely unmatched. So that you'd be awed by Christ and by his work. We're to continue on verses 5 through 14, which I don't have time to walk through right now. You would find the Old Testament proofs that testify the seven things we just talked about. That's what 5 through 14 is. One of the beautiful things of the book of Hebrews is how it uses the Old Testament to argue and to articulate New Testament theology. That's what you find in verses 5 through 14. So church, what do we do with such a high view of Christ? What do we do with such a high view of Jesus? I mean, are we supposed to just walk out of here and go, man, Jesus is good. What do we do with that? I want to commend to you three applications offered by Paul in Colossians 1 and Philippians 2. I want to do so because if you were paying attention on a deeper level, you would note Colossians 1 and Philippians 2 parallel this passage really closely. I'm going to start in Colossians 1, which, and I don't have time to walk through it all, but Paul articulates the supremacy of Christ. So you see 15, 16, 17, 18. And then in 19 he says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. But the author of Colossians, Paul, wants you to think about that as Jesus is fully God and he's made purifications for your sins from the book of Hebrews, be reconciled to him. For he's already made a way for you through the cross. Be reconciled to the Father. Because for a good man, some might be willing to die. But Jesus, 
died for all of us. And he took on our sin that we might be reconciled to the Father, that our sins might be forgiven, and that we might have peace with God because of the blood of the cross. What do you do with a Christ so great? Submit to him. Give your life to him. Repent and believe in him. For there is not a better offer anywhere than that. Secondly, I'd point us to Philippians 2, which I will read a lot of. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in this spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. If you've received anything from Jesus Christ, that's his argument. If you've come to know salvation, if you've received any blessing by Jesus, to be transformed by Jesus. For God doesn't just save you to keep you the same. He saves you to make you like him. Look at his application. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look to your own interests, but the interests of others. Hebrews is putting before you such a magnificent picture of Jesus who lowers himself for people so that you, having come to know such a great salvation, would be empowered to lower yourself to serve. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What do you do with a Christ so great? Submit to him. Become like him. And then I'll end in Colossians 1.28, which is in many ways Paul's final exhortation on the person of Christ. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Why do we warn because without Jesus, there's judgment, right? We, we believe in that. Him we proclaim, 
Jesus, who he was, what he's done, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, pleading if necessary. Know the work of Jesus. Know what he's done for you. Repent and come to know him. That we might present everyone mature in Christ. Paul says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he has powerfully worked within me. What do you do with a Christ so great? Submit to him. Become like him. And proclaim him. That's what Philippians and Colossians would tell you to do with this picture of Hebrews who's told us how great Jesus is. So that's what I put before you this morning. Let me pray for us. Father, the lie in the garden that the snake told, did the Father really say, did God really say from the very beginning the evil one has been working to deceive people on the nature and the character of God? The author of the book of Hebrews comes out strongly to tell us who Jesus is. He likens him to the God of the Old Testament. His ministry like theirs, but better. That Jesus rules and reigns and has dominion. That Jesus created all things. That Jesus holds everything together by the power of His Word. That Jesus is the exact imprint of the nature of God. That Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. And that Jesus went to the cross for you and for me so that our sins might be forgiven. And then he sat down at the right hand of the Father to rule and reign until he comes again. Father, would you comfort us with a picture of Jesus so great And would you stir up in us affections for Christ so that we would submit our lives to him for he has dominion over all of it. Father, would you be at work in us transforming our lives into his likeness. For by the word of his power he holds everything together. And Father, could we proclaim him a Christ so great that would empty himself on our behalf so that we might know salvation. Father, would we warn and would we proclaim boldly so that all might be mature in Christ. Father, we give thanks for who you are and for your word. Would you embolden our faith with a Christ so great? In your name we pray. Amen.